Good afternoon, guys. Welcome to Emmett Audio. So this morning I got up at 4.45 and was out the door by 5 o'clock, driving out to Eastern Mass so that I could go pick up these 15 pullets, which are just young chickens that haven't started laying eggs yet, from a farm out there who was buying a large quantity of them in from Pennsylvania, and I was able to piggyback on their order. We haven't had any chickens all winter. Our poor rooster's been all alone. So I was excited to get them, but boy, driving out towards Boston made me aware of just how insulated I am from all of that where I live. And even the fact that I don't really drive anywhere on a daily basis. Um, There's a whole part of life that involves getting in a car and sitting in traffic that I think is extremely common for the vast swath of humanity, and I'm just terribly grateful it's not my reality. Today I'm talking about wood selection and storage, I guess. We'll see how far I get. I'm walking the dogs. Will's got the deer skull in her mouth. She's trotting up through the ferns. Um, you guys are all scattered across the world, so... Um, The best advice I can give you is this. Be choosy about the wood you choose to carve. That's going to have the biggest effect on whether it's a fun experience, whether you're pleased with the outcome, whether you feel like you're actually achieved what you wanted to achieve. That is by far dictated the most by the piece of wood you choose to carve. So what wood is appropriate for each of you is going to differ um, depending on where in the world you live. But taking the time to get the right selection uh, is important. And by the right selection, I mean have a create a stockpile for yourself of really nice pieces of wood. I don't just mean small pieces. I mean See if you can strike up a relationship with an arborist or a tree surgeon. See if you can uh, strike up a relationship with a neighbor who has trees. See if it's worth buying a log, a veneer quality log from a, a yard. You might be surprised at how inexpensive it is. And then curate that selection of wood that you have available to you. And keep nudging it along as you use it up. Keep gathering. So that at any given time, if a piece of wood, if you split open a billet of wood and you're like, ah, maybe not, you can walk away from it because you've got an abundance of wood. If you don't have an abundance of wood, you're going to find yourself trying to carve stuff that is just going to lead to frustration. Stuff that's twisty or full of knots um, or overly spalted or too green because What matters are three things. The species of wood dictates a lot. That's the thing I can't really speak to. Here in the Northeast, cherry is my absolute favorite, as you can tell by the fact that I carve almost exclusively cherry. Followed by mm, probably sugar maple, if I catch it at just the right moment. And same could be set of birch maybe, followed by beech a little bit, and maybe walnut, but honestly those are all distant 
distant seconds to the cherry. Partly that's because black cherry is a forest tree around here, so it grows quite large. And because it tends to grow in forests, it usually has long sections of trunk that have no branches. So it's relatively common to find a large branchless trunk of cherry. The other feature it has is it doesn't rot or spalt quickly. The sapwood and the bark will rot away, but the heartwood will remain on the forest floor. Long past the point when you walk past it and think, is that any good? It'll still be good. You just have to know to look for it. So species is going to vary depending on where you are. In general, you want a hardwood that's on the softer range of being a hardwood. Um, and you want to avoid woods that split readily, like ash and oak. You want to avoid woods that are overly hard, like hophorn beam and hickory. And uh, you want to avoid um, species that are tannic, like oak, again. Um, that would have an unpleasant taste. Notice I didn't mention any softwoods, and that's because you should probably just stay away from them. The, the pitch and sap in softwoods just makes for unpleasant spoons. Um, now, the two other factors and that I can talk about a little more specifically are the physical dynamics of the wood itself. Maisie, come on! And the age of the, the piece of wood. Let's start with that one first, because just like wine and cheese, wood ages, and its qualities change as it ages, and its qualities will change as it ages depending on how you age it. So, if you split up wood into small pieces, it will just dry out, and then it will age in a different way. It will cure and dry in a different way. What you're looking to do is more of a fermentation where you want to retain some moisture in the wood, letting it dry out slowly. But similar to how you would age a cheese or age a salami, you want it to dry out slowly and have a whole host of secondary changes, chemical changes, happen within the wood. Now, sometimes this makes the wood look different. I've had cherry that is much more chocolatey brown than you would think cherry could be. Sometimes it makes it smell different. I've had cherry where it has had a sharp uh, acidic smell rather than the fruity cherry smell that it often has. And that, that was not the dark brown wood, by the way. There's a whole range. But what all of this aging has in common is it if it happens in the log form, meaning in the round form, so that it happens slowly, the fibers in the wood relax and they don't, they don't warp as much when you carve a spoon and then the spoon dries. And that's both because it's lost some of its moisture content, but also because it's just kind of relaxed in this way that's hard to describe and I don't fully understand what's going on. But... It allows you to carve a spoon from start to finish without having to wait and then do finishing cuts later because as you are carving it, you can see the moisture leaving the wood. Um, this is always fascinating to see. 
the physical qualities of the wood will also alter over time in the log. And there's no recipe I can give you because how long a log has before it goes too far or before it reaches perfection, what even is perfection, these are all details that are kind of pointless to try and achieve. The best thing you can do is just have a big stockpile and then try carving a piece of wood. And if you didn't like where the piece of wood it came from, well then don't split off any more from that log. and Just let it sit for a little bit longer. I think it's valuable to let the logs just sit on the ground. I, I don't see any value in piling them up off the ground. Um, unless it's birch, which you want to take some pains to keep from having it spalt too quickly. Because birch bark is so waterproof, it, it won't allow the moisture to evaporate from it in the same way. It might be worth splitting off the birch bark, peeling it off, um, just by scoring it down the length and peeling it off if you can, uh, or simply using it relatively green and fresh. Um, the reason I emphasize uh, the importance of aging a piece of wood is that there's much less risk involved with carving a spoon from start to finish in one go than there is in taking a lot of time to carve it, then let it dry, and then have to go back to all of your cuts and straighten everything out. You rarely end up with exactly the spoon you intended when you do that because the chance that you're going to make some error is so great. So aging your wood is an important step. Um, and in general, I try to just gather pieces of wood as I come across them by the side of the road um, or as I take them down in the grove. But really, there's so much for the picking around where I live that especially this time of year when the tree crews have been busy clearing power lines, I can just, as I drive around different places, I, I drive around in a pickup truck, I just pick up stuff and keep a stockpile. Now, once you split up wood too fine, then the name of the game changes. Then the name of the game is trying to preserve the moisture at all costs. So if, it's, if you split it up into billets, put it in a plastic tote, wrap it in a trash bag, keep that moisture in. If you have split it into spoon blanks, definitely put it in plastic bags. And if you're not going to get to those spoon blanks within a couple weeks, put them in the fridge. And if you're not going to get to them within uh, uh, a month or two, put them in the freezer. Because <clears throat> at that point, you want to arrest any fungal growth that might be happening in the wood by cooling it down. And the keeping it wrapped in plastic is very important. As you start to carve a spoon, if you need to put it down, stop halfway, go get a drink of water, eat some lunch, wrap it in a plastic bag. Doesn't need to be tight, doesn't need to be a Ziploc, doesn't need to be saran wrap or cling wrap or whatever you call it. It just needs to be loosely wrapped in a plastic bag. Um, that's gonna make it much easier to continue carving later. If you fail to do this, you're gonna catch yourself in a never-ending cycle of having the top couple millimeters of the wood dry out and harden significantly, and then you're going to get struggle getting down underneath that hard piece of wood 
to the point where by the time you get down underneath it and the carving's easier, you're tired, you take another break, you leave the spoon blank out again, and the cycle continues and gets worse. That's how you end up spending days finishing a spoon. Something that should take about an hour. So, keep it wrapped in a plastic bag. Speed is your friend, especially in the early heavy removal stage. You want to get through that stage and down to a much more delicate state as quickly as possible while there is as much moisture in the wood as possible. Um, Once you've reached that sort of optimal moisture level. Now the qualities of wood will change uh, as they slowly lose moisture sitting around the log. So wood that is uh, a little stringy or, or rubbery, those two qualities will often shift to becoming um, more waxy. And wood that is kind of crunchy and squeaky will often shift to becoming more buttery and crisp. Um, And you can feel these with your knives as you're carving them. So the real litmus test of is a log in a good place to carve is slice off around from the log left as long as possible. So if the log is wicked thick, then you have really have no choice but to cut it short because otherwise you wouldn't be able to move it. But if it's a slightly smaller diameter and I can get away with a 32 inches or just however long it happens to be, I'll try and take it in as long a form as possible and let it age in that long log form so I get as little end grain checking as possible. I also think you end up with better results, just in general. Plus, to some extent, it extends the life of the log if it's losing moisture more slowly because it has less uh, exposed end grain per volume. So, you want to just carve off around, split a piece of it off, try carving a spoon from it. If it's not at a good place, we'll stick the rest of that round over with the log again and just let it sit for a little bit longer if it's still too wet and therefore rubbery or stringy or crunchy. So that's the age of the wood. Now let's talk the characteristics of the wood. I'm a huge fan of clear, straight logs. If there's a little curve to them, fine. I can exaggerate that into a little more crank if I need to. Um, But I'm not a fan of carving crooks. I think that crooks are difficult to learn on because the grain pattern that they create in a spoon is not predictable and will often change halfway through a cut. And I have seen time and again students create too much crank in a spoon from what I think is really works well simply because they're following this idea of letting the spoon be completely dictated by the curvature of the crook in order to get maximum strength. Well, first of all, that's a bit of a fallacy in the sense that you can get a perfectly delicate yet strong spoon with straight-grained wood, even a ladle. It's just about knowing how much to leave and where. Um, And so you don't need a crook to make a perfectly good, strong spoon. 
And in many respects, the crook will trick you into doing things that are not ideal for the spoon because you then end up following the form that the tree has created instead of thinking to yourself, what is the form that's actually going to work well? So my recommendation is to get your hands on the biggest diameter, clearest grain, sweet with as few branches as possible, chunks of wood as you possibly can. Have a nice stockpile, stick it on the north side of your house, especially in the southern hemisphere, Elaine, <laughs> and stick it on the south side of your house. You want it in the shade. Um, and and you want it uh, basically to not be baking in the sun. And then you want to use it. Um, and if you feel like you have a whole bunch that's at the optimal moisture uh, level, well, split it up into billets and pop it in your freezer. Um, you can get a little tiny chest freezer that would hold an awful lot of steam carving billets for relatively little money. And if the wood is that great, then hold on to it. Um, I would also recommend that you stay away from small diameter pieces in general. The smaller the diameter, the more likely it is that every little twist and turn of the grain is going to be translated into frustrating experiences in your spoon. And the more likely it is that your spoon will be sabotaged by a hidden knot that was not apparent as you started axing. Because knots on branches get sort of surrounded by fresh wood as the branch grows. And then the nice thing about trunks of trees or big limbs is that there's generally clear wood because that point where a branch dies and forms a knot, something that happens on small branches. It happens very rarely on big branches. And if it does, it's super obvious on the surface and you can simply avoid that. Come on, Willa! Come on, Maisie! So choosing to carve really big diameter pieces of wood um, is a way of not being surprised halfway through the process by some idiosyncrasy of the grain that totally sabotages the spoon you just spent so, so much time on. Um, I've also just found that bigger diameter wood is just more sweetly behaved um, and ages better in the log as well. So for me, probably the minimum diameter that I would bother picking up is eight inches in diameter. Um, and that's on the very small side. Uh, obviously, to process this kind of wood, you're going to need a chainsaw. Um, and you're also going to need a maul, a splitting maul, and a couple wedges. At least one of those wedges should be a metal wedge. It's fine if some of them are wooden wedges. You can just make those out of wood you have lying around. But have at least one of them be a metal wedge. And... Um, and the best way to split up a big log, I mean, anything that's sort of normal firewood size, you can just split in half. When you get to some of these really big diameter logs, if you were to try and split them right across the middle, unless you had a whole series of wedges, which does make it possible, the simplest thing to do is just to start essentially splitting off chunks from the side, working your way around until you work the diameter down to be slightly smaller. And that will allow you to 
then split across that smaller diameter. Once you've removed those constricting rings of growth all around the outside that are essentially acting like metal bands holding the whole log together, once you split those off, the log will pop apart much more easily. Um, the nice thing about that is that when you process a log down this way, you get a whole bunch of different growth ring orientations. So some of your spoons will be radial, some will be tangential, some will be Tom Scandian just told me this is called rift orientation, where it's sort of halfway between radial and tangential. And so it's a nice way of getting variety into your spoon orientation without uh, being so rigid as to sort of quarter split a log down and have everything be radially split. Um, uh, yeah, so that is wood storage. If you live in an area that gets snow for the winter, it's useful to have a tarp over where you put your logs, but have the tarp be up above the logs. So you, you get a big snowfall, you, you don't have to like shovel off the tarp. You can just duck under it. Uh, I just made a really simple one with a canvas tarp and uh, some rough sawn lumber. I think it cost me a hundred bucks to get a, uh, an eight by 20 foot tarp barn set up. Um, and most of that was the tarp. Um, and it's been great, it's been invaluable for being able to store all that wood over the course of the winter and still have access to it. As far as using a chainsaw goes, be safe. Um, chainsaw is super valuable, it allows you to scavenge wood from the side of the road, but it is one of these things that takes real skill and knowledge to operate safely. So. Figure out online some resources about how to handle a chainsaw safely. Take a class. Um, be cautious and safe and wear all the appropriate safety equipment. Chainsaw is one of the easiest ways you can seriously mess up your life in the blink of an eye. That's not to say don't use them. It's to say use it with some education under your belt and some knowledge and perhaps a mentor who can show you what they know. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll talk more tomorrow.